0: Good afternoon, everybody. It's Richard Oldberger, clinical psychologist, and I'm here with my co-host, Lorinda Phillips. And we are here from the podcast, Making the Jump, here to bring you the stories of retired athletes and their journeys into the world beyond in an effort to share with you valuable stories, experience, skills, knowledge, and thought processes perhaps to help you make the transition yourself, you or someone you know. Today, we're very excited to bring to you a very talented guest who will probably steal the show from us, but that's okay. We're here to facilitate. We'll fight for our words in Edgewise, and we thank all of you for joining us and supporting us and your patience and excitement in launching this project. Lorenda, welcome. Hey,
1: okay, thank you. Hey, uh, Richard, it's uh, great to be here with you. We're gonna talk today to uh, Reginald Grant. People call him Reggie. He's an MSED and he's a business strategist, consultant, speaker, and author. He's a serial entrepreneur. We gotta
0: find out what that means, right?
1: Exactly. He's a former English teacher a professional football athlete. He has a passion to empower, inspire, and inspire individuals to be successful. All because he has been helped and inspired during his journey. Want to hear more about that too. Uh, with the understanding that success is defined differently for all of us, we work with schools, organizations, and on special projects that empower people with the tools of success. He's the author of Entrepreneur, Your Guide to Sharing Your Business. That was just published. Managing Your Brand. You can pimp me, but you have to pay me is the subtitle of that. And that was, uh, published in 19. And and then thirdly, Youth Entrepreneurial Impact Program, he, he created in 2018 and numerous other books, teaching guides, workbooks. He's I, also
0: the CEO of Esports Instruction. I
1: know. The man is this, he has children too. Oh, right? man. And so I'm, I'm very happy that he's here. I want to hear more about the journey. I want to hear more about what's this about serial entrepreneur. You know, let's run with the show. Okay. So we have some questions for you, Reg.
2: I have some answers for you. I knew it. We're this great opportunity to be on here. Glad to be able to add a little value and share uh, whatever insight I have.
1: Yeah. Thank, thank you so for much. your generosity. Great. So you said in your bio that you're a serial entrepreneur. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but then we're going to go backwards into the football days. But what's what's a serial entrepreneur, Reg? Well,
2: that's a good question. <laughs>
0: She goes right to the tough ones, Regina. Right? No, no icebreakers, nothing like that.
2: Oh, it's all good.
1: Well, I mean, no time to waste.
2: Started as a kid, you know, I always wanted to be a business person and I wanted to play some sports and football and. And those were kind of my goals as a young person, and I've achieved all those goals at some level. Along and had some peaks and valleys along the way. Yes, <laughs> it all started at the University of Oregon when some people approached me about uh, starting a little company and doing some a promotional thing. a dance. and that evolved into a company I own, Glass Pyramid Production. Ooh. And that was Gene Oregon, and that was way back. Right, <laughs> I was a youngster. Probably a sophomore in college, and we uh, three of us started It ended up with just me, but I ended up uh, doing events on campuses, working for attorneys and sororities, and, and then doing standalone events. And we'd have uh, two, three 3,000, 4,000 people at these events. It'd be parties, then it'd be an after party, and that's where I got the bug really embedded in me. So we started there, and, and I've had a series of businesses along the way, and, you know, worked in some corporate structures along the way.
0: Now, Reggie, let me ask you, because at the time, was it common for a college athlete to have his own business, right? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no Where
1: <word.
0: laughs> your coaches
2: like, you what? What? You want to play and run a business? First rule is you don't ask for permission, you ask for forgiveness. Yes. And I was always that guy that uh, tact is not one of my strong suits, and and, uh, I was even worse then. So it got me some hot water sometimes along the way, but it also has uh, allowed me to take control of my time, which is my most valuable asset along the way. Yes, I was definitely not the average student athlete. I knew the education was my key to a a future beyond sports, and I would not be able to run fast and jump hot for the rest of my life. Uh, So education was something in my family, my mother, my father, William Juanita, uh, instilled in us as as a pathway to opportunities. And I really adhered to that uh, along the way and always put myself in a position to acquire more knowledge than less. Just like money, more knowledge serves you better than less. so yeah, I started out back in college doing glass period productions, and did that two or three years in college, and and it really uh, ignited the entrepreneurial spirit bugging me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, when I was a youngster, I had visions of being a businessman and, and pro, pro football player, and accomplished those along the way, and and had again peaks and valleys, made money, lost money. So I've had a you know a standard entrepreneur's adventure where you, yeah. you don't have. Success without failure, and, and just like, you know, in athletics, you need repetition, and sometimes repetition includes things that you don't do it right, so you do it wrong, 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 until you finally get that muscle memory of doing it right, and in business, doing it right is making a little gas money, and other elements of like doing it right may be, you know, success is defined differently for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, being a serial entrepreneur has, has been embedded in me. From there, I went on and and again went to University of Oregon. From there, fortunate enough to be drafted by the Jets and go out there and have had a series of businesses along the way. You practice at Hofstra. Yes, we did. Played, Played at Shea Stadium before they uh, moved over. Oh, to- wow! Nine and that was 1978. We were I was a rookie with the Jets the new york jets i was one of four or five defensive backs they drafted so i believe in the weeding out process and evolution and and uh was mark
0: mark gaston out there there then
2: was mark was in? there in 79 he came in 79 played with wesley walker and Burge owens who's now running for a political position in the state of utah Get and it. chris ward one of my uh, teammates was in that class i was it was a the uh, last consensus All-American uh, offensive lineman uh, who was always the last lineman that was actually really seriously considered for the Heisman. Uh, Chris is a beast. He actually lives here in the Los Angeles area. Uh, saw him last month. We do a little business together and still talk each, each crazy to each other. Yes. Um,
0: so they knew, huh? After you could survive Oregon, that you could handle yeah, no Queens, no. New York, huh? That you could handle. Well,
2: Not handle it, but you know, <laughs> we had uh, seventeen defensive backs in camp. We kept three safeties and three corners. There were twelve corners. We kept three of the twelve and two of the rookies: Bobby Jackson, BoJack, and I. So yeah, so, you know. But again, that's the weeding out process. I remember in practice one day. They cut a hit on the practice field. The defensive backs were not having a great day, and the defensive back coach goes, doggone it, you know, he used more colorful word language than that. The next guy that gets beat deep is going to get cut, and he cut him on the field. He oh. got deep, he was jogging back towards the, the defensive back group, and the coach said, no, son, you're done. Go home, sell insurance, or do something, but go in turn your gear in and next who's
1: next the next man up right yes. next man up.
2: Exactly. Oh! i never forgot that little thing and it's always about competition and being competitive and and uh, along the way you know you don't want to hurt other people but you want to put your best foot forward and and, yeah. and try to do everything you do exceptional so yes i am a serial entrepreneur I own tax services i once owned a restaurant an italian restaurant in escondido california I lasted about a month. Right. Mm-hmm. Cooking uh, lasagna uh, in the back was rough on me. Right. That was that was hard work. Restaurant business. Tax service, real estate. What other businesses? A software company. I worked for the nicest software back when the Internet was started up. When you use Undo's in Microsoft Word, I worked for nicest software that actually created Undo's and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, I've had a long and colorful uh, life and adventure along the business line and i was an english teacher for 17 years worked in the state board for creating C- some of the assessments that they currently use that actually was there in january before we had this shift in the world we've authored a few books around that work i see uh
0: thoughts yes. of an urban teacher and uh success stories insights by african-american men how important Are those texts right now based on what we're experiencing?
2: For some people, it's a new awakening and a a epiphany that went off in in their brains and they were able to see it. Technology has changed the ability for us to react to things and see things. And as a culture and as a world, we are all interconnected. Well, of course, they have significance, but they have significance for people that are not necessarily affected by things. If you're not affected by something or it's not in your face, it's hard to connect with that. And because of technology, some of the things that have happened for many, many, many years and decades and and centuries are now to the forefront of people and it's in their face. So that's why they reacted in the way that they reacted. And some people will have a lifelong change and effect upon them. And of course, some of our institutions, we have to address some things and some issues. And again, America is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I still firmly believe it is the greatest country on earth. It is just not a perfect country. And the beauty of this country is we have the ability to have different opinions. And usually they don't kill you because you have a difference of opinion. So that's a good thing. The problem right now in our society is we're not having uh, dialogue without wanting to beat each other up. It's okay for us to have a difference of opinion. We just need to be a, allow the guy to just stand on the other side of the table and, and we have a conversation. And that's how you move things forward in a positive way. And the book came as a result of, I had been teaching for about 11 years. I taught English for 17 years. Urban kids, international kids, English and second language kids. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I figured I'd go back and get my master's degree and, and, and had to do all that doggone work. And I said, I need to just turn some of this into some intellectual Property, ah, that's invaluable stuff. Matter of fact, that's the most valuable commodity on the planet. And so I turned my first book into, from my master's papers, into that book, A Teacher's View Education in America. As you can see, I just started writing and and putting my thoughts on paper and aggregating that process. And I was an English teacher as well. And my 14-year-old, who will be 15 in a couple of weeks, and my 17-year-old, we have three daughters, 27, 17, and and soon to be 15. But the 15 and 17-year-old already have their own books. And actually, uh, both of them will come up with another book that's finished i just need to help polish it up this summer so rachel grant the book she wrote on poetry and she has a book uh uh, wishes which is the story about a middle child that's whining about not getting enough attention (laughs) i think
0: i'm the oldest i'm still
2: whining (laughs) am i i can relate and the youngest one, of course, who's going to be 15, she had a, a first book about three years ago. And, uh, but that's the, the downside of it. you the teacher's uh, child is "I make a Do Stuff." This summer, we were on ETap all summer. Uh, etap.org and use that platform which is a superior academic uh, platform for getting kids to uh, be successful uh, no matter where they're at it does an assessment and a lot so I made them do that of course I had to bribe them with a little uh, economic incentive yeah well uh, so cost me money to do that but they were able to practice and, and get skill development during the summertime while we had the downtime. And this week, yesterday was their first day back at school, but they were kind of used to the process. And so the transition shouldn't be as difficult as it is for millions of other children around the country and
1: families. Yeah, and there's some advantage to having a father, the teacher. You know? <laughs> it, it, I mean, maybe they wouldn't think so, but they will later on. It's not now. Yeah,
2: exactly. Hopefully, when I'm long dead, and gone, they'll think about the uh, skills I helped to embed into them yeah, and close yeah. them to. I mean, the fact that they're
1: happy. authors are, is remarkable. okay well i'm gonna take you back that was a question that led us in a long you know like a lifetime which is fabulous but let's take you back to you know i read your book as i i told you and uh in the forward you had kind of your story and i'd love for you to go take us back there and give us that experience of how it was for you playing in college playing in pro and what was like Well,
2: again, you know, we are some of our experiences. And so uh, doing those things is just what I did, right? Yeah. Went to high school and Chief South High School in Seattle, Washington. My family, uh, mother and father, dynamic people, uh, moved from Atlanta, Georgia, to Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. And the only people that knew that were my, my father's sister and her husband. And he worked at Boeing and had just gotten out of the Navy and told my dad he might be able to get him a job out there. So my parents uprooted us. I was six. My brother was uh, Uh, two, and my sister was one, and we took a train all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, to Seattle, Washington. So my parents put us in a position to have some opportunities, or more opportunities than there were in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, uh, Greenbrier projects at that time in 1962 or so got to Seattle, and we ended up at uh, High Point Projects, and eventually my father was working for Boeing, and, and moved us into a little house. We rented for many years, ran football, my played football, played basketball, ran track. Um, my sophomore year, I was the third best guy in the team. My senior year, I was third fastest guy in the team. Uh, So a little work uh, in between there, but I, I figured out that my parents could not afford for me to go to college. And, and just looking around and, and being at Louisa Boyne Middle School, I realized that the people that run everything have college degrees. So maybe I need to get one of the pieces of paper that can uh, you know, help me to open the door and change my life and give me opportunities. And again, my parents pounded on us about the importance of education. And so I kind of started listening to that a little bit. And by the time I was a sophomore, it really clicked on me that in order for me to get a college education, I needed to leverage my athletic ability coupled with my work ethic and leverage that to that scholarship to the University of Oregon. And uh, while I was at Oregon, and again, in high school, I ran track and, and long jumped 24 feet. And, you know, I worked rather hard to, to give myself uh, the maximum benefit of whatever athletic ability I had innately in me. So that, again, led me to Oregon. I was recruited more out of high school for track than for football. I'm only 5'9", weigh 165 pounds in high school. The football <laughs> coaches were all like, look, run track and, and uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can try out for football. And I'm like, and then I had a conversation with somebody and it's amazing how you have conversations along the way that can change or impact your life. And that's why I do some of the things I do in terms of just talking to people. But uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman that was at the University of Washington. I was there for one of those track meets and I did many, many track meets during the summertime, spring. And he explained to me that, you know, he had lost his scholarship at college because he got hurt and couldn't make his time. And so pick me went off and by the time I was a senior, um, I had eight solid football offers and, and one was University of Oregon and I had 50 or 60 schools from track that were talking to me and courting me. And I only looked at the football offers because if you got hurt in football, they would have to pay what it. they normally is to injury. They'll pay for your education. So I, I chose the football route, didn't run track at all in college, and even though I was at the University of Oregon, went there and had, you know, success. I, I played every the game was a freshman at the University of Oregon for Coach Dick Enright uh, and didn't let her. I say one of my weaknesses is the lack of tack And I said some things that uh, he deemed and this, the defensive coordinator, the defensive back coach and the office back coach. thing was a little inappropriate. Uh And we had to have a little meeting Mm -hmm. talking about we are freshmen on varsity. Uh, I was the second year that freshmen could play varsity. And that should be uh, happening on varsity. Now, I played every game as a freshman and didn't let her. So, Oregon, you still owe me another letter. But anyway, uh, went on to my sophomore year. I ended up getting hit when one of my teammates cracked my shoulder, which was a blessing in disguise. That means I was able to just go to class and take classes and get ahead of the curve, took as many classes as I could, had one brief summer job or spring job where I had to go work in a lumber mill and all the guys were missing fingers. And I said, I do not need to be here. So from that point <laughs> on, I never summer jobs. I, again, I, I became an entrepreneur and, and, and did my own little thing and hustled up money uh, through putting on those events and promotions. And uh, then I did not go home during the summertime. I, I took additional classes. So when it, my senior year rolled around, I had plenty of credits and and I could take a rather light load and focus on my opportunities that I thought would be ahead of me. My junior year actually uh, got uh, injured uh, and was became a, a damaged good, damaged product. Uh, there was actually a three-foot-high wall that ran around inside the University of Oregon Austin Stadium, and I got kind of pushed into that. We were playing Utah in Austin, and uh, they thought I was dead, but God wasn't ready for me to go yet or had other things in, in mind for me. And so I hit my left shoulder, broke three ribs, had a little scar and cut under my my chin, and was able to play a week or two later. I was in fantastic shape, but I actually played it about three weeks later. My mo- mother always uh, jokes with me about Coach Brooks, and 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 we had tricked a trip to Notre Dame. We were playing Notre Dame in the hedges, and he said, well, Coach had said you weren't going to play, and then she says, I was listening on the radio, and I hear Reggie Grand. <laughs> <laughs> so. 40, 50 years later, my mom's still saying, yeah, you weren't supposed to be playing. So yeah, I had a little success there. I started three years at Oregon. I uh, was fortunate enough to be drafted by the Jets again I was the fourth of five defensive backs they drafted that year. We had 17 defensive backs in camp, Uh, 12 of us were corners. They kept two of the three corners or three of the 12 corners and two of us were rookies and three of the five safeties. So competition is part of my lifeblood and who I am and what I believe in and, and capitalism is a good thing. So, you know, again, you ask for forgiveness, not for permission. If you'd like to listen more,
0: please click on the link for Making the Jump located in the show notes so you can get access to all of the shows and their complete recordings. This is Richard Listens, and I'm out.